Happy Valentine's Day, and welcome to the second episode of Tale of Two Sisters. I'm your host, Vanna. And I'm Thorne. And we are just going to jump straight into this special episode. Even though it is a Valentine's Day themed episode, we are keeping it on the theme of sisters. And that's because we're covering the 2015 gothic romance Crimson Peak. So, Crimson Peak, in case you didn't know, is a 2015 gothic romance film directed by Guillermo del Toro. And uh, this film stars Mia Wasikowska, Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, Charlie Hunnam, like just a very sexy cast. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. (laughs) Um, I, uh, whenever I think about this movie, I definitely think of it as like, by panic. (laughs) Yeah, I felt very betrayed by the fact that Jessica Chastain was his sister because I was like, oh, a thruple. And then it was still possible. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, Thomas certainly thinks that's something that's going to happen, but we'll get into it. Um, In case you didn't know, uh, Crimson Peak is a story set in Edwardian era. Um, I guess England and America, it kind of jumps across the ocean um, as the story progresses, but it follows an aspiring author who travels to a remote gothic mansion in Cumberland, England with her new husband and his sister. And there she must decipher the mystery behind the ghostly visions that haunt her new home. Well, let's get into it. Um, What's your relationship with this movie? I just like it. (laughs) Okay. Like, that was a weird question to ask. (laughs) What what do you mean? Because this time I feel like I don't have, like, an answer to my relationship with it. I feel like I just saw it one day because someone told me to. But I don't have any memory of it. I just sat there and watched it, like, alone in my room or something. I don't have, like, a relationship with it. Okay, well, um, as for me, I remember when it came out and it was, like, all the buzz. Everyone was super excited to go see Crimson Peak. Um, I remember not really knowing much about what it was about. Um, I ended up, even though I was actually really excited to go see it in theaters with uh, one of my friends in college, um, it just didn't, like, work out. Um, I don't remember why, but... I don't know, I just got busy or something, you know, it's college. But um, then I just never really watched it. It just kind of, because I missed it in theaters, it just slid under my radar after that. That's pretty much what happened with me. (laughs) Yeah, and then I actually remember um, it getting a little bit of, like, flack. I think a lot of people, because it was, I don't want to say marketed as horror, because I don't really remember a lot of the marketing, but a lot of, like, horror, I guess, focused people or media outlets were, like, I guess upset that it wasn't really actually a horror movie, quote-unquote, but I don't care. Um, We're covering it on our horror podcast, and uh, I claim this as mine, but I mean, like, gothic romance, like, gothic stories are, like, kind of housed under horror anyways. The ghosts being in it make it horror anyways. By definition, anything that has, like, a scary element intentionally is a horror film, whether it's a comedy or a romance, Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would actually disagree with that, but I don't. (laughs) Sorry if that's one of you listening, but uh, the genre is so broad. Yeah, I mean, I agree, obviously, um, since we are 
we have both decided to cover this movie. Um, But yeah, no, I I remember the first time I watched it, I immediately fell in love. I wanted to watch it again. Um, This is like quintessential like romance. Um, Like when I want to watch something like gothic or romantic like it would be this or like bram stoker's dracula like (laughs) yeah that's also one of my favorites but honestly i feel like i was one of those people that ended up being really disappointed by this movie Mm. but that was only the first time i watched it and i know i mentioned this in the introduction but thinking about the production of a movie and like the symbolism and the meaning of it is what really makes me enjoy movies Mm -hmm. so i think on first watch I was, that you know, I was one of those people who's a little disappointed in the lack of horror or the lack of ghosts, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, also, somewhat the lack of romance. I know it is a romance story, but it was, obviously, it does not end the way I wanted it to. Yeah. And obviously <laughs> has a, you know, a focus on a different romantic couple at one point. So I was a little disappointed because I thought it was going to be more horror and more romance at the same time. And obviously... I have ADHD, so sometimes I get bored by things when I'm not seeing it for what it is, you know? If I take something for face value, I don't enjoy it, because it's about my attention span. But if I'm analyzing and thinking and, like, diving into the media, that's what makes me really enjoy it. So I think it really, like, changes my whole perspective. Whether I'm just, like, head empty watching something, I could get bored, because all the enjoyment and the goodness out of this movie is comes from like the depth to it, you know? Yeah. And I guess, um, to maybe, you know, dive into some of that disappointment that maybe some people were feeling, I think we should just go ahead and like jump on in because the opening and like a lot of the beginning of this film, like I would classify as, like meta like I think Guillermo del Toro is very like privy to what like gothic like fiction is to what like romance is and I think he actually was probably like playing with a lot of the expectations people had because like you know pretty early on um you know when Edith is getting like feedback about her novel like there is um you know, some commentary, I would say, about, like, you know, like, it's a ghost story, and she's like, well, like, the ghosts are a metaphor, and, and things like that, and referring to some, like, women, like, famous women authors, like, I think, um, by including a lot of that stuff, it's being meta, and it's, like, playing with the expectations, like, we all know it's a romance, but, like, how would it feel if, like, that romance, like, we all want her to get Tom Hiddleston. Like, yeah. like the fact that that is then torn away from her, like, I think that's almost, like, exactly the point. Like, playing with the expectations of romance. And the fact that it's foreshadowed in one of the very first scenes oh, yeah. with Edith. Edith is talking to Alan's mother and sisters, and they're all gossiping because she's going to be a spinster. Yeah. How dare she? And they compare <laughs> her to Jane Austen, saying she's going to be a spinster. And she immediately goes, no, I'd rather be Mary Shelley, who died a widow. Yeah. And then she turns and says goodbye to Alan. And I love that scene because it not only to me as it is like an assertion of her saying the literally the famous phrase, I'd rather know love and lose it than never know love at all. Mm -hmm. But then she immediately turns to Alan and says, goodbye. 
because she has no interest in him. And that I see that as foreshadowing where it's like, no, even if she gets falls in love with someone and loses that person, she's still not going to end up with you, Alan. That just because yeah. she loses it, she'd rather be a widow and alone forever than, you know, settle for someone like you. Like, I love that. That that just whole, foreshadows the whole movie right then and there. Boom. Yeah. And um, I guess <laughs> that's like a funny thing that I have, like, as one of my thoughts when I think about this movie is that, like, Charlie Hunnam is, like, too himbo, like, for this film. And I think... Um, I don't know if I have, like, my timeline correctly, but, like, he was doing Sons of Anarchy, so he's, like, a little beefcake in this movie, and, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a little, like, unrealistic that, like, this beefcake is just, like, some optometrist or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. It's I, funny. He's just a little too, like, hot to be, like, the friend-zoned doctor. Not that that's, like, not that you can't be, like, some sexy doctor listener, but... Um, it's just, like, funny. Like, think, that's another, like, almost subversion of, like, the nice guy, like... I was gonna say, that's another thing nice people were disappointed friend. about, is that they were like, well, she can't have Tom Hiddleston, she should at least have a happy ending with Alan, the other hot guy who's a doctor who loved her her whole life and knew her father and all these good things, and it's like, well, no, she doesn't owe him affection mm-hmm. because he's that guy. And that's what I love. So, like, that's another thing that people were like, oh, well, if she can't be with Tom, then she could be with Alan. And yeah, I'm like, new, no. New Splash listeners, um, life doesn't always have happy endings. So, yeah, I I agree. And, and again, like, at the beginning of the movie, you see the end of the movie, which can be, like, kind of corny in some cases. But I think Guillermo del Toro is, like, such a masterful director that it doesn't feel corny. Or if it feels corny or campy in a way, it's because it's playing on, like, the... <laughs> conventions of romance and and whatnot but um but yeah um I guess jumping off of that um and with like the scenes with Alan too like another really important uh moment like happens pretty early on and that's when um Alan is showing her like the ghost photography and stuff and he um he likens it to uh, colorblindness because he was just seeing a patient who was colorblind. And I just really love this scene because it's using, it's like, it's exposition in the sense that it is because the story is meta in a way. It's giving us clues to the themes of the film, like reoccurring like motifs, but it's doing it in like a roundabout way that it doesn't feel like dumb exposition like some movies can have but but I love um you know he's talking about colorblindness and um how it relates to like ghosts and so you know then he says like he he only accepts their existence in in regards to the colors red and green because the majority around him does and then she says perhaps we only notice things when the time comes for us to see them and this immediately makes me think back to when she saw the ghost of her mom as a kid and you know, who warns her, like, when the time comes, beware of Crimson Peak, and she's, like, Mm -hmm. has no uh, context to, like, figure out what this warning means, and that's exactly what she just said. Like, perhaps we only notice things when the time comes for us to see them, and and again, it also, uh, because they're discussing colorblindness, it plays into the use of color throughout the film, because the man he saw is red-green colorblind, which is, like, the most popular form of colorblindness. And this movie is drenched 
in red and green yeah. from a certain point on. Yeah, the entire movie has a color palette of four essential colors. It is red, gold, blue, and green. And I vehemently believe that the green is just supposed to symbolize, like, a, not only, like, the obvious interpretation being, like, envy, but, like, a fusion of the blue and the yellow. Like, what they represent and everything. Like, mm -hmm. I think Guillermo del Toro is such a genius in the way he uses the gel lightings and, like, the way the s scenes are set. Like, mm -hmm. exactly like he says, where, like, you're only, you only see red and green when the time comes. You only see red and green and blue when you see, like, the ghosts in the beginning of the movie. And then you see greens on, like, Tom's suit. Mm -hmm. And um, the first time we really see red is on Lucille's outfit in the ball. Ooh, but yeah. other than that, everything is drenched in gold. Everyone's dresses are, like, gold satin. The sets are all gold. Very candlelit. Everything set in America has, like, this, like, golden hour lighting, right? Yeah, it's very almost, like, sepia. Like. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, like, there's a lot of, uh, like shots that are framed where like red and green are kind of um maybe splitting a ma main character's face like down the middle um but yeah but Guillermo del Toro is such a like like I said before masterful director he plays a lot with color in a lot of his other films um and it's just it's just beautiful I like can't gush about this film <laughs> enough um and I know it like like I said subverts like romance expectations and um, obviously, like, spoil alert, um, you know, the fact that they're, like, an incestuous, uh, sibling duo, um, means that they are supposed to be problematic and we're probably not supposed to like them because they're the villains, but I just swoon this whole movie. Like, the candle waltz at the beginning is just so romantic and, like, Lucille was just playing the piano, like, for everyone, like, they are, like showstoppers um i just love them yeah yeah that i like the things i love the most about this movie are the costume design the set design obviously mm -hmm. which includes the lighting and then the actors like the people playing these characters are so good at what they do like tom hiddleston's acting is so particular in so many of the scenes. Ooh, like, yeah, yeah. Like, when you meet him immediately, like, you see the obvious manipulation tactics, like, right away. Like, the immediate, like, oh, well, whose book is this? Oh, the writer is fantastic. When he obviously knew <laughs> yeah. that who the writer was when he said it, you know? And, but you could see throughout that, he, all of his reactions to her are genuine confusion and, like, impression. Like, you can tell he's trying to manipulate her and he, she's constantly confounding him, you know? So it's really fun watching his acting do that, you know? Like, he goes from being like, oh, I'm doing a fake persona, but for a moment you see his eye twitch because he's like, whoa, I didn't expect you to act like this. And, like, you could see that acting, especially when they kiss in his workshop for the first time. Mm -hmm. Like, you could see in his eyes that he feels guilty for kissing her. And you, yeah. and you know why, because you're like, oh, he never kissed or slept with all the other wives. He was only ever with his sister. So when he's kissing, you know, Edith, the, for, like the first time he's ever fallen for one of his wives, she, he looks guilty, but then he gets into it and then immediately like sheds the guilt away. And you could see all that in like a three second, like five minute makeout session it's really good acting and yeah. it's so small you know like it's yeah, so both good him and jessica chastain have a really 
um, particular way of portraying the different ways in which they're kind of like tortured inside. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, she's like the aggressor. Um, this may be like a problematic opinion, but um, because I know Thomas is complicit, but like he's the younger sibling, and it's implied that um, she kind of like groomed him from an early age. Yeah. So, um, you can really tell the ways in which he is kind of like tortured inside, and especially because like Edith is supposed to be, um, like this woman that is like really smart and breathtaking and so like she kind of poses a really big challenge to their um shenanigans you know obviously and it's also really important to note he wasn't actually supposed to choose edith he met her and started trying to woo her and manipulate her to manipulate her father for the money Mm -hmm. but he was originally supposed to marry alan's sister that's why the candle scene is so dramatic is that that he came to America as a guest of Alan's family. He was there to court Alan's sister. And that's what they're talking about in the first scene when they're laughing at Edith for being a spinster. And so at the ball, he's about to walk up to Alan's sister and you're mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. And he asks Edith, Edith to dance instead. And with like we were saying with their really good acting, you could see Jessica Chastain do a face of like, that's not the plan. But yeah, does yeah, but she yeah. doesn't let anyone else see that. And so that's why this whole movie is like wasn't supposed to happen the way it was. He was supposed to marry the shallow girl that was Alan's sister. And but instead he chose Edith. And then she was like, Well, that's fine. Edith is also rich. But then that's like the first thing he did wrong was he already fucked up the plan from the beginning. Yeah. And he's actually falling in love with her, constantly being surprised by her. And it's just such a such a fun story because of that, you know? Yeah, it's like tragic in that way because I think again you're also supposed to kind of infer that um you know this relationship has been going on like their whole lives um but that there has been turmoil which we kind of like figure out later when they do the reveal regarding the baby and things like that um that I think like Thomas is kind of he's the one who's like always been trying to get away not not like get away but like he's always the one that's been um because he's the one who is manipulated into this the relationship that he's mm-hmm. the one who is going to maybe eventually seek to end that relationship or um i don't know but yeah it's <laughs> one thing i think that's interesting is that like they said something about like picking people who have no family and stuff like that and um you know like that's why they kill Edith's father so that she has no one mm-hmm. but I'm like were they gonna kill like Alan and Alan's parents I like, think it was she... under the impression that because of that family's like wealth and status that generally when you marry one of the daughters off to another country you just kind of don't care about her anymore like they already have three other daughters yeah I guess I guess the the thing that's different um about anyone that they would have chosen here is that they would have been going across seas. Whereas like before, I think it was like, they were already in Europe. They were in Europe. Yeah. So I guess maybe they weren't thinking that hard about those, uh, nitty gritty parts of their little like devious plot (laughs) because they're going overseas. But, um, which again, back to like them killing the dad. Um, those (laughs) graphics, Jessica Chastain in a suit, 
does a lot for me. <laughs> Those are some, like, there's not a lot of gore in this movie. Like, I would say there's none other than, like, creepy ghosts. But that scene of her dad being murdered on the sink looked so real to me that I'm, like, convinced if it came out at the same time as, like, Cannibal Holocaust or whatever, that they would have had to genuinely bring Guillermo del Toro in to check if he's alive. Because Bobby from Supernatural, I, that looked so... It just looked so real to me. And then when they examined his corpse later, I was like, wow, that looks like a real dead body. Like, I, I'm just very impressed by the visual effects of this Ooh, movie. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to say about that, which, first of all, I'm like, they're like, he slipped. <laughs> it's like, he slipped and he, like, collapsed his entire skull. Okay, sure. But, um... It must have been a really big slip from the ceiling. <laughs> but one thing I actually didn't think about until you brought up that death. Um, until now is because I have always thought about the different killings in relation to Lucille's rage and how personal the attacks are because obviously the first death is the mother which she was upset because they had uh, found out that Lucille and Thomas were hooking up so they were gonna separate them so she like in her rage um cleavered her in the head (laughs) cleavered her in the head which is pretty like, violent as far as murder goes. Um, Which, also, I love the Shining reference. Like, mm -hmm. I love seeing that, like, even if it's not intentional, that clear shot to the bathtub looks to me very much like a Shining reference. Mm -hmm. So I just love that little nod. But, yeah, so, like, that's a very rage, uh, passion-filled death, and, like, the other deaths uh, were a little more um, impersonal, I guess you could say. Like, Edith was being poisoned and things like that. So were the other wives. Yeah. The the one, um, I think the one was stabbed because she was also killing the baby at the time. So I think that one has a little more passion in it and a little more rage because of the fact that um, the birth of their child. That was also the woman who's going to leave. Enola, which ironically is alone backwards, mm-hmm. was going to leave and she also wanted to like save the baby so she was like all right killing you both in a crime of passion (laughs) yeah but i think to me um like the most passionate uh deaths obviously the mom and that one because to me like the child like it being born and having complications due to the fact that it is a product of incest um is like in a way lucille was faced with the reality of, like, even though she can kill all these people and, like, make sure her and Thomas are always together, that something about their love is always going to be rotten fruit. And, like, that angered her so much that, you know, she had to kill the child and the the wife at the time that was taking care of it. And I never thought about I also this think it was theory. jealousy, too. I mean, yeah, but I never thought about this uh, theory of thinking about Lucille's um, anger in relation to the way she murders in relation to the father. Because you would think that that would be something that would be more impersonal because it's business. It's just part of uh, their plan. But I think maybe, like you said, the fact that they weren't there for Edith, but like his, you know, his little (laughs) escapade at the... Uh, ball is why they had to choose her and I think she was lashing out against the fact that like Thomas is not doing what what is planned and she's almost like anticipating that 
uh, Edith is going to take something more from her than the other wives did. And she kind of like takes that out on the dad. Oh, like, Edith's father also threatened them. He hired a private investigator to, and who found out that Tom was already married and had been married multiple times, including the newspaper article showing their mom with the cleaver in her head. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's one of those things where she not only was mad at Tom for going against the plan, but him changing the plan almost got them caught. So that is like a, like yeah. the m- most like wrong it could go for her. Like she was like, this is the worst thing that could happen. And she lets it all out on him because she doesn't just kill him the one time. Like she hit him in the head and he was dead. She kept going because it was a crime of passion. Yeah, she's like the most furious when someone poses a real threat to her and Thomas's yeah. uh, relationship. Um, and I just think that's like amazing. I think Jessica Chastain does a really good job of really portraying that um you know kind of turmoil and yeah like she's so like psychotic (laughs) which i mean like i love that one part when she's like really chasing edith throughout the house with like that like knife yes i mean if if tom hiddleston was being taken away from me too i think i also would be Chasing you with a knife throughout the mansion. Yeah, which also you bringing up that chasing scene makes me want to talk about the costumes real quick. Ooh. There's obviously tying into the huge color theory. I think a lot of the colors have meaning. Obviously red being like the ghosts, death, passion, lust, things like that. Obviously the crimson of crimson peak and blood. And then gold I see as not only like happiness but also the wealth like it obviously when it's all gold in america they came to america to get some wealth and some mm-hmm. help and all of them are wealthy but also it's this like perfect little happy little life well it's got the gold and sunshine mm-hmm. and then i see you know blue as sorrow but also the siblings their whole house is like blue jessica chastain is always wearing blues you know mm-hmm. but then i see green as like for tom for being a being torn between the two worlds and also envious of wanting to not be stuck with his sister, you know? Mm -hmm. But so that really makes the costumes of this movie even better because every costume is so meticulously designed to the fact that they like, from like when you first meet Tom, he's in a black suit, but the lighting makes it look green. And when he's uh, sleeping in the room with her at the post office Everything in the room is yellow lit, and then he has a green light on him. And then Jessica's costumes are all blue, including the one which I thought was really neat, is when they're making the tea and literally poisoning Edith. Mm -hmm. The embroidery on her dress is poison ivy. There are poison ivy leaves literally on her dress as she's making tea. And then there's the green light in the background. You're like, oh, damn. She poisoning this bitch, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it's funny because her and Edith's costumes change as the story goes on. And what I love is that obviously in the beginning, Edith, like everyone else in America, is wearing these gold satins, all these like bright golds, like rustic mustard colors, you know? Um, but then when she moves to England, at up to Crimson Peak, she starts like changing her outfits a little bit. The first mm-hmm. thing she comes up in is she's wearing a gold dress, but she's covering it in a white and red shawl, you know? Yeah. And then as the story goes on, she starts wearing more greens, like a light green, like more yellow opposed to the Tom green. But I think it's showing that she's like coming into his life with him, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just because she's wearing her greens and then it goes to blues once you get to see more of her sorrow. But then at the end of the movie, both of them are completely stripped down 
to their identities, which is just them in their nightgowns. Mm -hmm. And I love that because at that point, it is stripping them of their status. It is stripping them of everything, including the symbolic colors that they had. They are now just two women, both in love with the same man, both showing their... Also, also, let's just mention the dress design, is the nightgowns is that obviously we see Edith is wearing like a modern Victorian slash uh, Edwardian, like big collared, big shouldered, tight cuffed nightgown. Mm -hmm. And then Jessica Chastain, she's wearing this old Renaissance open shouldered, like more seductress, like long Renaissance bell sleeves. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, yeah, her dresses are amazing. I mean, they, uh, they mentioned earlier that all their clothes are like really good quality, but old. So I just loved that. I noticed, I was like, that's a Renaissance nightgown versus Victorian, but it's just both women being stripped down to like their nightgowns, like literally symbolic of them being pure white. And it's just them battling it out in this mansion. And I love it. (laughs) Yeah. I think, yeah, it's, it shows, like, I know it's, um, like, a plot device to show that they're, like, old money and their money's, like, running out. But, like, also just showing that, like, the way that they're kind of stuck. Um, like, they made it to, to, they made it to this point where they are stuck in this mansion together because she wants to keep Thomas for herself. But they're just kind of, like, stuck in their, in their past. And I think that's part of what a lot of the, like, ghosts are about like i think obviously the ghosts are like there to help edith because they are like the wives and like the mother mm-hmm. but um but also just like she talks about you know in relation to her book the ghosts are a metaphor and we already talked about this in our last episode too with um a tale of two sisters and um you know shows and movies like haunting of hill house where like especially with like gothic stories and and things like that where like ghosts are like, this manifestation of trauma or, like, the past coming back. Um, I think um, the way that they have, like, this old, like, their clothes are old, it almost makes them, like, the ghosts of their own story. Like, Lucille is, like, haunted by her own, you know, <laughs> her own craziness, I guess. I love that Tom even it. says that. He was like, we've we've been ghosts in this house a long time. Yeah, I'm like, oh, Tom, <laughs> Thomas, stop it. Um, but yeah, also, I think um, I read that there uh, there is a lot of vintage pieces use- used as, like, costuming, so there's a mm-hmm. lot of, like, actually old, like, Victorian, um, I think, lace or fabric that's being used, um, which, again, is another, like, point of attention to detail on Guillermo del Toro's part. Um and, but yeah, I just, I think, like, the ghosts are really beautiful, and um, I think that's a really good quote from Thomas about how they've been the ghosts. They're the ghosts haunting themselves, <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Like, I love it. I love it because with the whole, especially with the whole theme of the ghosts are representation of grief, you know, mm-hmm. like, echoes of grief physically manifesting in the world, mm-hmm. um, is that, one, it really shows to me that Tom does feel guilty for what he did to those women, I yeah. think. Because obviously when you, not, well, not only when you watch a movie, but when you write a film, you have to understand that like, oh, I'm writing a metaphor, but this metaphor is still a physical thing within my media. So thinking of the ghosts as, you know, physical entities and not just the metaphor, it's like they exist because of his grief, you know? And like, 
Yeah. That's like, if he didn't feel guilt for what he did, I don't think there would physically be ghosts there to help Edith through this journey. Yeah, 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 I get exactly what you mean. Because if you're looking at it as a pure metaphor and there's no ghosts at all, then what Edith is seeing is hints of guilt in his attitude, in his personality, mm-hmm. in, in his behavior. That, that would be the hints that he did something wrong before. But obviously, because the ghosts are literal, physical in the movie, while also being metaphors, it's like, I feel like they're only manifested because of his guilt. And then and they manifest beautifully. I love the way he designs ghosts. Yeah. Guillermo del Toro said that he designs ghosts the way he saw ghosts as a child. He was like, he was All like, right. oh yeah. It, he, they were like, how did you come up with these designs? He's like, well, that's just how ghosts look. That's just how All they right. look. And I was like, you know I what? trust you, Guillermo. You know what? Fuck you, Guillermo. Because that's what the woman standing outside my window when I had sleep paralysis <laughs> looked like. Literally like Edith's mom, like that, like almost one-to-one and that happened Mm -hmm. before crimson peak ever came out so when he said that i went oh no is that what ghosts just look like because these are horrifyingly awesome designs (laughs) yeah i like um they're kind of got this like misty like there's like kind of this um liquid uh or fluidity to them like it's kind of like bleeding and i think it's almost like a way and like you know because she says it's a her mother's ghost was almost like uh a message out of time or a warning out of time and mm-hmm. i think it's like about how um ghosts are like bleeding into our reality yeah. like so i think that kind of is a really beautiful way to see like why they all have this kind of fluidity also like, surrounding them. old uh, like an homage to how ectoplasm is photographed in real yeah. life and stuff yeah. like that and also with the skulls and the faces it very much gives me the um Oh, gosh, I'm blanking on it. De los Muertos or whatever. Or Dia de los Muertos. Yes, yeah. Day of the Dead. He, yeah, very, like, sugar coal. Like, the way that, that, like, Hispanic culture represents how the dead look, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, sugar coal, skull, candy face, you know, like, stuff like that. Sorry, I should know how to say these mo- way more, considering <laughs> I live in Southern California and have celebrated with many friends. But... I just love the like that you could see those tie-ins like the ectoplasm from old historical photos, you know the Hispanic, uh, you know tie-ins and the designs and the fact that he says that that's just how ghosts look. Like I love everything about it. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about earlier today. I was just thinking about Shape of Water for like no reason. I was thinking about Doug Jones a lot. <laughs> I just I love him. That's just what I think about. <laughs> I I just think well I think what what I love about Doug Jones specifically and I hate to derail this is just that he, you know he doesn't have to be this the only guy to be put in these practical effect makeup, you mm-hmm. know? Like in roles where he is completely silent, it could be anyone underneath there. But but he's so good at what he does. And also it's very hard to wear prosthetics. I also say this cuz I know it is hard to like I'm a cosplayer. I know how hard it is just to wear a wig and like a corset and a few layers. Add latex and a bunch of other shit on that. I think one of the reasons Doug Jones is so talented is because he can move very naturally in all of that. Mm-hmm. And he has got that like figure, but he just like expresses with his body so well. Like like Andrew Garfield playing Spider-Man body expressions. <laughs> I <laughs> Yeah, Guillermo um Del Toro usually uses uh Doug Jones uh and or like Javier Botet, like I think yeah. both of them play uh, a different set of ghosts in this film. And I know he uses a lot of CGI like on top of 
um, the use of, like, the physical actors. But I think it gives some sort of tangibility um, to the characters. And I think it gives a lot more for the um, the other characters of the story themselves to interact with. Mm-hmm. Um, I know even with... Uh, with Thomas, um, Tom Hiddleston was actually wearing makeup, um, and was actually, like, present, um, and then they kind of edited it later, so that there is some sort of actual, like, physical presence there, and I think you can feel that physical presence. Like I said, there is a lot of CGI on it, but it's different than, like, just some movies nowadays where it's, like, literally, like, this, this is essentially just an animated picture <laughs> yeah i was like, gonna say most no of the physical uh, presence there most of the cgi is also literally just like practical effects over practical effects mm-hmm. where it's like where one of the ghosts is like you could see the woman's figure oh it's the mother in the bathtub you can see their woman's figure you could see her little saggy boobs you know mm-hmm. but then you also see a skeleton the skeleton is a practical effect and the woman is also a practical effect and then they overlap those two using cgi and then make it just transparent enough in the scene and that's what, like, with the mom, it's literally all practical effects, costumes, and everything, and then a little bit of CG on the moving mouth, and a little bit of transparency, and that's it. You know, like, they really, like, it's mostly practical effects upon practical effects, then with CG, and that's what I like, versus a lot of the times in things where I watch something that has practical effects, they put too much CGI over it that I think, why was it practical in the first place? Like, Vecna from Stranger Things... I amazing never, I know never. but it's amazing <laughs> practical effects but there's so much CGI on it in the show to make it look like it's moving that I wondered like why is it so much practical effects you know like mm-hmm. when you put too much editing over it, it you're taking away some of the original like craftsmanship you know yeah definitely yeah no yeah Guillermo del Toro he's he's the guy he he knows what he's doing especially with these like ghost pictures and with that being said do you have any other final thoughts on Crimson Peak? Uh, I mean, nothing in particular, honestly, just rounding up my general thoughts that I, like that I've said over the course of the episode was just, I'm obsessed with the set design. I want to live in that house. I know it still exists somewhere. There's no way they tore it down. Um, I know. <laughs> the, set des- so the set design is awesome. The costumes I'm obsessed with, especially as a costumer. I mean, honestly, it's just one of those things as someone who's done almost every, like, job, quote-unquote, in, like, movie making, costumes, set design, directing. I'm obsessed with all of it. Love the cinematography and the camera work. I would say the only thing that is, like, like when I list all my favorite things about the movie, I'd say my least favorite thing, quote-unquote, is the actual story. But mm-hmm. I love it, though. I, personally, I don't like sad endings. <laughs> but otherwise, I thought it was so beautiful. And I think knowing what I know about the movie and all the symbolism, the blatant foreshadowing through the, like, dialogue, I love all of it. Like, the actors, the acting, the sets, all of it. Yeah, I, I guess to echo that, like, I am obsessed. I love this movie, I think everything about it is so beautifully crafted. Um, I don't know. I think Tom Hiddleston and, you know, Jessica Chastain are such a dynamic duo and they are just, uh, just so good. I don't know. I can't talk about it enough. Um, (laughs) I guess a special shout out to Tom Hiddleston's butt. (laughs) Um, and also, And also Jessica Chastain's nipples, of course. (laughs) Sorry, if you're going to shout out one, you got to shout out the other. (laughs) Yeah, and um, 
I also, I guess maybe special shout out to when, uh, when he stabs, uh, Alan and they like kind of share that little embrace. Like they could have been boyfriends with Edith, but, <laughs> but whatever. Um, you know, like April in, uh, Parks and Rec. And oh, yeah. This is my boyfriend. This is my boyfriend's boyfriend. Yeah. Love that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess those are our final thoughts on Crimson Peak. And since it's Valentine's Day, I wanted to add a special segment on the end of this episode dedicated to our problematic horror crushes. Of course, uh, I talked about a few of mine, uh, Lucille and Thomas Sharp, but I wanted to ask you if you had uh, any problematic horror crushes, any horror hotties you wanted to dedicate today's Valentine's Day to. Listen, Billy Loomis is so overrated for a reason. I love him. (laughs) That movie was the first movie to, like, horrify me and also the first movie to maybe, like, sexually awaken me. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I'll give one shout out to... James Spader in 1996 David Cronenberg's Crash. Um, I don't think I fully understood Robert California from The Office until I witnessed (laughs) the young, perfectly coiffed, sexy, little, beautiful James Spader (laughs) as as James Ballard in Crash, Um, which... In the future, if we do some Cronenberg films, we will have to talk about that. It's uh, particularly relevant in the anti-sex on screen discourse that's been happening. Yeah. Um, But if you want to hear more problematic horror crushes, uh, such as my horror crush Kakehara and the crushes of many members of the horror community, you should check out Horn Blood Fire's special Valentine's Day episode, which if you're listening to this on Valentine's Day, that episode should be live um, and get to hear a little snippet from a bunch of freaks about their weird horror crushes. Happy Valentine's Day, listeners, and next week be prepared to eat your heart out as we dive deeper into films exploring sisters. See you next week!